Thank you for listening to the audio podcast of the King's Crossing Church of Christ. To learn more or subscribe, please visit our website at kingscrossingcoc.com. One of the uh, unexpected blessings of moving to a 930 service is that it made it possible for Mike to get to be back with us leading our worship again. It worked with his schedule. And boy, we are sure glad to have him back uh, in the rotation and appreciate all that Mike does to just uh, add to the experience of being here. I had a professor at uh, Harding University named Bill Richardson, and uh, Bill had been a missionary in Chile for, for many years, a Spanish-speaking country, and uh, he taught missions classes. But as he was reflecting on his experiences, One of the things that usually happens to missionaries or people who go to live in another country, certainly a different culture, somewhere right around the two-year mark, everyone seems to hit some sort of a wall where it makes you anxious, it makes you frustrated, where you know just enough of the language to do pretty well but not quite enough to feel comfortable and you start especially missing home and what felt normal to you. And while he's down there, he starts having a problem with his vehicle. Something breaks on his car and he had grown up kind of doing some mechanic work with his dad on cars, and he thought, sure, I can, I can diagnose this. And so there's a, there's a little problem, and he works through and troubleshoots, and he finds the part that's messing up. And he thinks, you know, finally, in, in this world where right now I just don't feel like I grasp all that's going on, I know that I got this thing figured out. And so he found a local mechanic, goes to the mechanic and says, you know, speaking Spanish to them, you know, there's this part that I need for my car. This is breaking. Can you please help me order a part? And they said, sure, we can order you a part. And so he waits a few days. They've ordered a part. They contact him. He goes to pick it up. And when he looks at it, it doesn't look anything like the part he's replacing. And so he's frustrated and he starts kind of arguing with the guy, the mechanic, and says, this, this isn't the right part. They said, yes, it is. It's the right part. He says, it's not the right part. Like, I know this. I got this figured out. And so he goes back and forth and finally is frustrated and he doesn't want to sour the relationship too much. So he pays for it, kind of jerks it off the counter, goes home, thought, you know, just, just for the sake of it, I'll try it, it's not going to work. But he went to his car and he takes the part and sticks it in and perfect fit. It didn't look like the other one, but as it turned out, there in a different component is for the same purpose on a car. And he talked about how frustrating it was just to say, I thought I had this one thing that I had within my grasp and I could control, but often we have to learn to trust other people in their own places to know what works best for them. We have to find a reliable guide when we're trying to navigate a place that we haven't been before. I've heard some people say jokingly that if there were any Bible verse, it would be appropriate for us to put up in a church nursery, it might be 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 51, which says, we will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. (laughs) If you know anything about 1 Corinthians 15, without completely ripping that verse out of context, but that's okay for our purposes. I do want to talk about how as we try to move into this, this new world we're living in, as culture is shifting all around us, All of us do have to be changed. We all have to go through change. We have to not just experience change outwardly, but work on change internally. Okay, Charles, I'm going to swap to the podium. Thank you. So we have to be open to that. 
I've been doing this series I'm calling Uncharted, and we've spent several weeks reflecting on what it means to follow God into uncharted territory. Uh, we've spent several weeks reflecting on some of our individual ministries, some of our visions for those ministries, and talking about how we intend to move forward. And so today, as I talk about our need for internal change, I wanted to start by talking about Rahab. Uh, Mike read for us just a couple of minutes ago the scripture reading that came from Joshua chapter 2. As Israel prepared to enter the promised land, just as they'd done before, they sent some spies. They sent a couple of spies, especially to scout out Jericho. They said, of all the places you look at, make sure you really take a good look at Jericho. It's a fortified city. It has high, thick walls. They could even be kind of boastful and arrogant because who could easily come and take Jericho? And truthfully, if they were dependent solely on the weapons that they actually had in their hands, they wouldn't have stood a chance against Jericho. It did actually take some divine intervention to make that ultimate victory possible. But when you are up against a foe who's greater and stronger than you, when you are facing walls that are higher than you can climb or stronger than you could knock down, where do you turn? I think there's some wisdom in what they did in that they turned to someone who is at the margins. When you're not sure what else to do, it always helps to talk to someone who's on the outskirts. In their case, this was the prostitute named Rahab. The two spies went to her dwelling place and if you know the story, she hid them on her roof under some stuff. She protected them when people said, hey, we're pretty sure we saw those two spies come to your house. She, she deceived them, sent them chasing the wrong direction to protect the spies. She did everything she could. And then she had that conversation with them on the roof that uh, Mike read for us. Hey, I know you may not see it, and I know we may look tough, but deep down, I can tell you at the ground level, what I'm hearing is that people are afraid. They know what you are capable of. They know what your God is capable of through you. We, they know what you could do with God's help. They'll act tough, but know deep down they're terrified. The people at the margins have a different sort of wisdom. Right now, in fact, just think about it. If you were outside of this very room trying to get into this room, trying to get up here to where I am, where would you have to come in through? You're probably not going to climb the roof and rappel down from the middle. You're probably not going to try and tunnel in under the floor and pop up from the stage. But if you were having a hard time getting in here, wouldn't you go to someone seated closest to one of our doors and ask for a little help or a little guidance or for someone to clear the way for you? It's the people at the margins. It's at the doors where we can find new opportunity. As an established church, as we face a changing culture, in fact, it will probably be the case that those of us who are most entrenched in what feels normal to us will be the least useful for providing innovative ideas for how to move forward. It's those of us who are most the part of our existing system that have the hardest time adapting to something that's different and unexpected. But that's the thing about people who live at the margins, people who don't feel as comfortable in the norm for everyone else. The people in the margins, they've already had to learn how to thrive in a world where they don't feel like they're in control. In a world where the powers are shifting, it is the people with no power 
who make the most reliable guides into a new world. I believe this idea is echoed several times in Jesus' own ministries. Jesus loved this grand, upside-down, reversal approach to things. There's these two back-to-back stories where Jesus talks to a rich young ruler that everyone thought, I bet Jesus can't wait to meet that guy. But Jesus challenges him on his materialism, and that guy goes away sad. And everyone thought, how did that happen? But then he goes to where Zacchaeus is, the one who everybody hates, and says, I want to go to that guy's house for dinner. Come on down. I can't wait to hang out with you. And people say, what What is he doing? He went to someone on the margins. He went to someone who felt like an outsider. Jesus is the one who talks about how the last will be first and the first will be last. Several times in Scripture, we're told, humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. In describing his own ministry, Jesus said, the one who wants to be great among you must be servant of all, because even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus was content to ignore the self-important, respected authority figures, and instead he would spend his time welcoming little children. And rather than pointing to the highly revered people of power, he said, if you want to become like a real child of the kingdom of God, you've got to become like one of these little ones if you want to enter the kingdom. The people that God will use to lead us into unfamiliar spaces will often be the people we would have never thought of leading us anywhere. So often that's the way that God has worked. So as I got this series started, I shared with you a few weeks ago the story of Lewis and Clark. And I want to expand on that story just a little bit. I told you about 400 years of experts who had all unanimously agreed the key to dominating this continent we live in is finding the Northwest Passage that will allow you to sail on easily down to the Pacific coast. And once you have water route access from coast to coast, you control everything. We talked about how um, Thomas Jefferson put together his core of discovery, Lewis and Clark, to lead them. And they got a bunch of people who were experts in water travel. And they brought their canoes. They spent much of their journey paddling upstream to get to the top of this mountain, believing that once we got over that peak, all we have to do is drop our canoes in the water and go sailing on to the Pacific, only to be met by the Rocky Mountains bigger mountains than any of them had seen before, far beyond what their eyes could even see. They thought they were getting to the easy part of their journey, only to discover that it was going to get much more difficult. They came prepared for a canoe ride, and instead they had to learn how to climb mountains. So once they're faced with this prospect, as they're entering into this strange world they've never been through before, they've never journeyed through before, they decided they needed to find a better guide. And so they hired a French-Canadian trapper to be their guide to the Pacific. And according to their journals, it wasn't very long until they began to realize this French-Canadian trapper was fairly incompetent. He was not going to be that good. They weren't really that impressed with his wisdom or his ideas. But he happened to have with him his young wife and their two-month-old son, and they found her to be invaluable to them in every way, someone they never would have expected, not even really hardly counted if they were taking a head count. Her name was Sacagawea. She was a Shoshone Indian. At this point in time, she's a teen mother. She would have been about 16 or 17 years old, 
carrying a two-month infant with her everywhere that they went. When she was about 11 years old, she had been kidnapped by a, a, an enemy tribe. They'd sold her off, and at this point, this French-Canadian trapper had married her as a wife. And so she ends up going along, but as they discovered, no one was better than she was at helping them find the right path. So there's a bunch of examples I could share from, from their travels. I'll give you just a couple of these. But for one thing that happened was one of their canoes suddenly capsized and flipped over. She was the one who thought and realized, oh no, all of the captain's journals are going to be destroyed by the water. She acted quickly. And part of how we still even have a record of what Lewis and Clark did is that she's the one who saved the journals from the water. Thank goodness. Thank goodness she thought so quickly. There were several times, I'm sure they would have said, why would we want to have along a 16-year-old girl and her two-month-old son? How could she be anything but baggage? On numerous occasions, they would encounter Indian tribes who would have assumed them a hostile party. But the one thing that warring Indians never brought with them was women and infants. And so when they saw uh, Sacagawea and her child, they would know these people are coming in peace. They would never have them if they were coming to make war with us. They got to a point in time where they were going to have to have horses to make it through their journey. So they went to the Shoshone Indians, and what started off as a, as a hostile negotiation, it got very tense. But Sacagawea got involved and started translating and interacting with them. And it wasn't long till she discovered the very man she was speaking to was her own long-lost brother she hadn't seen in years. They got everything they needed, and they were able to continue. And in fact, from there... The Shoshone begged Sacagawea just to stay with them and live with them because they were her people. Instead, she chose the adventure. She stayed with the group and wanted to see them through all the way to the finish. One, one person who was reflecting on this dynamic said, Sacagawea was not, like Lewis and Clark, charged with scientific purpose. She was not one of the Americans who owned this new land. She was not claiming alien territory. She was coming home. She was going back to the place she knew she belonged. What was frightening and unsettling and unfamiliar territory to these people she was with was home to her. It was familiar to her. I like this quote from Dave Gibbons, who incidentally leads this very large uh, multi, multicultural, multilinguistic church. He says, the future is already here. It's just on the margins. It's already here. We just have to get better at how we look for it. For us as a church, you know, there's great value, especially, I'm convinced, in spending time talking to new Christians, especially those who have been outside the church, who convert to Christianity. There is so much wisdom to be gained by asking the questions like, what was it that convinced you? Why did you choose to be here? What was it that helped you come to Christ? Because Whatever it is that works for them, there's a pretty good chance it might work for someone else. And in fact, probably someone else that they know. There's so much wisdom that comes from talking to the newest of Christians. There's also great value in what we've done through our mission trips and our efforts to travel to other places. It's easy for us as affluent Americans to think about traveling to another country and say, well, isn't it great? You're going to go help those poor people in that other place and do some big things to help them out. But the truth is, they're already used to doing ministry in a context where they're not powerful. 
And just as much as we can bless them, we can learn a lot from them about what it looks like for a church to be mission-minded in a place that isn't necessarily friendly toward them. We can bless them, but boy, can we learn from them. We have to look to the people that might not seem the obvious choices and recognize their wisdom. You know, just off the top of my head, I'm thinking about the last church that I worked at in Old Hickory, Tennessee. Um, one of these kids' programs we put together right before I left, the great idea that finally took that program and made it really take off came from a, one of our local moms who was just highly involved in one of the local school PTAs, where she had enough local contacts with the people who actually lived in the community that Old Hickory now has an incredible um, you know, needs-based community ministry on Wednesday nights. They're having like 60 kids of various ethnicities, skin colors, cultures coming to their church because of this mother's connection to the PTA, because they respected her and liked her. I couldn't have opened that door, but she did. We have to look to people who might not seem so obvious. So as we reflect on this changing culture, I know we're all aware of it. I know some, some of us, the longer you've been alive, the longer you've been a Christian, the more likely you are to feel that dynamic of how things are just different than they used to be. I wanna share three questions with you that I don't have an ultimate answer to. I just want you to chew on these with me a little bit. Three questions before you start despairing at the way things are changing. I wonder if there's some other ways to look at it. One question, is the church really in decline or is it just the Western established form of church life that is now less effective than it used to be? If you ask that question in a global sense, Christianity is growing like it never has before. But it's also the case that now if you were to say, let's, let's put up on the screen a picture of the average Christian in the world today, their skin would be a lot darker than mine. We kind of view everything from a Western perspective, but in all the other parts of the world, the church is rapidly growing and expanding. When I got to go to the UK uh, back in 2017 for that workshop, one of the things that blew my mind, I was talking to my friend who's a church planter in Scotland, and he grew up as a missionary kid in Scotland. And he said, one of the things that wore us out for years, we just prayed and prayed and prayed for God to send some sort of renewal because it felt like the nation has just left God behind and wasn't interested. And the way that God is restoring the church in the UK is through a bunch of African immigrants who are moving there. And so what happens is where Christianity is so strong in Africa, they're now immigrating into Scotland and they bring their faith with them. And all of a sudden they've got a thriving church where they are, but mostly it's African immigrants. But just the same, God brought the renewal they needed, but not from where they were expecting. God can do amazing things. So it may be the case that we have to rethink some of our methods, but I'm convinced the church can continue to live and to thrive. Second question I want you to think about, are people truly less interested in God or have they simply stopped giving preference to Christian traditions and institutions? Sure, the assumptions of the world, the moral fiber of our country may have really felt like it shifted a lot, and I think that it has, but is it actually the case that people aren't interested in God anymore? You know, I don't know about that. Don't we all still wrestle with the big existential questions of life? Like, why am I here? Who put me here? What, what's a good thing to do with my life and my energy? What's a waste of my time? What is my ultimate destiny from here? I believe everyone still has to wrestle with those questions if at some point we set down the cell phones and turn down the volume on the headphones. 
Sooner or later, we've all got to wrestle with those questions. And I still believe, as a Christian, the best answer to all of those questions is found in Jesus Christ. The assumptions around us may have shifted, but that doesn't mean the answer has changed. The answer still works because Jesus is the way and the truth and the life, and we don't need to back down from that commitment. Third question, is our lack of cultural support a threat? Should we be afraid now that culture doesn't support us the way it used to? Or is this now actually an opportunity to work together in new ways? Something I really loved uh, when I was in college, I got to meet a lot of Christians from all over the country. Some of my favorite Christians came from the Northeast and from the Northwest. They were in places where certainly churches of Christ didn't have that dominant of a presence and they might have to drive an hour, hour and a half to get to the nearest sister congregation. You know, they had this saneness and a spirit of camaraderie about them that was just so different from where I'm from. Uh, in Nashville, I think I drove past six churches of Christ to get to the actual one that I worked at. There were as many, at one point in time, there were as many as 200 churches of Christ just in Davidson County uh, where Nashville is. There is some backbiting and pettiness and some stuff, frankly, sent me down this way. I got so tired of it. But I appreciated the way that up in those parts of the country where things are more sparse, all of a sudden we got to get over some of the stupid stuff and actually really value each other. How precious it is to have someone else who also names Jesus as Lord, who is struggling the way that I am to make it through this life as a faithful person. There's value in those connections. So I wanted to share those questions with you. I don't know that I have exactly the answer to any of them, but I think those are things worth reflecting on. Maybe it's not as dire as we would want to believe that it is. It might be harder than we thought it was going to be, but we also serve a God who helps us do the impossible because he carries us through. If I was going to mention the way that Justin is good at talking about third spaces, and then he went and did it for his communion devotional. So I got a prime example I can point to from this morning. But he's absolutely right. One of the things we've got to do moving forward is create these third spaces where people can connect. They say that, you know, you've kind of got your home and you've got like your work or your school. You've got like your primary two places. But where we actually make connections with people is in the third spaces. And coming into a church service might be something that's intimidating for a lot of people. But as we saw this very last week, there's a lot of people who might would come by the gym for a warm place to hang out or to spend an evening, or to take a hot shower when they couldn't get one at home. Um, I was just so pleased, Justin's already alluded to this, but for, from my angle, spending a few hours uh, over the last few days, I saw older and younger people hanging out together. I had several of you talk to me about, well, you know, I was just over here shooting some hoops and I met this other person. They've gone to our church a long time, but I never talked to them before. I, man, that's a really cool person. You know, it's amazing. We actually go to church with some good people if we had the opportunities to know each other. But I saw so many good things happening. So, something that has weighed on me for months. This is me just kind of being fussy, but it's like we worked so hard to get to the point that we were going to get this thing built out here. And then stupid COVID had to come along and mess up our big grand opening and all the things we wanted to do. And we're still going to do something big at some point. I know that we are, but I have to say, as I was reflecting on what was going on last week, we didn't plan it, but God had some intentions for it. I can't think of a more appropriate way to inaugurate the use of our building than to welcome people who needed warmth and a place to get clean and a place to make friends, some alternative to what the world had. 
We've created a really useful tool, and I believe God will continue to use it. But what a great start it ended up being. No matter what changes, we know that God and his steadfast love for us, the help that he provides us through his spirit, these are things that are unchanging. I want to remind us of two verses that are familiar, I'm sure, to most of us. Uh, The first is from John chapter 13. Jesus says, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. I've said a lot this morning about the importance of not just loving the people who seem powerful or in charge, but loving the people who might seem like they don't even belong here. We'll probably get some of our best wisdom from people who don't feel that comfortable as a normal part of things. But if you're not sure what to do, if you're feeling confused, do whatever it is that love is compelling you to do, and you'll probably be pretty close to the right path. That's what Jesus says. How are they going to know we're his people? How are we going to identify ourselves as God's children? Love is the identifying mark, the love that we have for each other and for every person who comes through our doors. Also, Ephesians chapter 5. This is a good word. Be careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Notice the assumption in the last part of that verse. Paul didn't say, well, you know, Christianity, we've just about seized the Roman Empire and then it'll be smooth sailing from here. No, it's always for the church, for the person trying to do right, we're always going to feel a bit outnumbered. We're always going to feel at a disadvantage because the darkness doesn't want to operate by the rules of the light. There's always going to be opportunity to feel discouraged if that's what we choose to reflect on. But Paul says, no, we have to be careful. We have to be wise. Psalm 90 says that we should number our days in order to have a heart of wisdom. That's one of the places that wisdom comes from, from getting a right perspective on, I've only got so many years to be here, I've only got so many days and weeks to do the work I'm going to do as part of the church for God, as a person who's part of the kingdom of God. I've only got so much time. When I learn to number those days, to value those resources, I'll use them much more wisely than I might have otherwise. I want to continue challenging us to be wise in how we use our time to be wise about what we want to use our energy fighting for, pushing for, working toward. And above all, there was a lot of prayer that has gone into the future of our church over the last three or four years. I just want to invite you to continue in that process because all of us are struggling with what is it that needs to happen from here and exactly what is it going to look like? And we're going to have to give our permission, ourselves permission to try some stuff, to have some successes, and also to have some things that may just kind of fall flat. And that's going to be okay because we're going to learn from the good and from the bad. And ultimately, God is going to carry us through. But meanwhile, you be praying for yourself, be praying for our church, and certainly for our leaders as we try to navigate this path forward. As always, we like to create a space where if there's someone who has a a need for prayer or encouragement, maybe you are a person who's really struggling or especially the last uh, week's events may have just kind of pushed you to a breaking point and we could just uh, pray for you or sit with you. Uh, Whether you want to come forward and talk to me here or you want to grab one of us after the service is over to visit with us, uh, we're always here to help you any way that we can. We would invite you to come forward as together we stand and sing this song.